Hi, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast. I'm Angus Stewart, but that begs two questions. What is this podcast and who am I? So let's start with the first question. It's definitely the more important one. So on this show, um, myself and possibly in the future, my friends um, are going to be looking episode by episode at different pieces of fiction from China. Probably mostly mainland China, perhaps some of the other extensions of the Sinosphere. So we're going to be looking at uh, stories from this part of the world that have been translated from Mandarin, or at least from Chinese, into English. And we're just going to go through them, share our thoughts, maybe see what other people have had to say about these pieces of writing. We're going to have a particular focus on the translation, um, maybe look at different editions, uh, different translations and so on. Um, I'm particularly motivated to look at books from this angle because I'm studying publishing. I'm doing a master's in publishing at Napier and there is a particular um, room for improvement in the world of publishing when it comes to translation and rights. So I'm hoping that this podcast will kind of mesh up with my studies but you guys really, you know, that's for my benefit not for the listener's benefit. So, um, where does my interest in China come from? I lived there for three years and now I'm back in Scotland, but I want to kind of continue my interest and my studies. That's basically that. So, um, without further ado, adieu. Anyway, uh, moving on. This week we're looking at a text called um, The Diary of a Madman by Lu Xun. So its original name is Kuangren Ruji. Um, so literally that's Madman Diary. Uh, its English name gets rendered as either the Diary of a Madman or a Madman's Diary. Um, so anyway, my edition is a pub. It's pub it was published um, by the Foreign Languages Press of Beijing or Peking, as it was known in the Western world at that time, in 1960, and then again in 1972. So Firmly in the communist era, um, definitely foreign languages press would be uh, an arm of the, the government. Um, so that has affected some people's view of this translation. Uh, I've seen some people on or people being quoted online saying uh, the annotations that have been added to this version of the text are ideological. I haven't read the annotations. I think the translation itself is fine. So it's by Yang now, these names have been rendered in the Wade Giles spellings of Chinese, which I'm actually not familiar with. Um, I also know they're not really very accurate to how the words should sound, so I may be saying this name wrong. Yang Xian Yi and Gladys Yang, so an English name for that lady. I believe they were husband and wife. So that's that. Uh, I first, I've read this story twice. The first time I also read this version, it's online. It's actually on this really strange website called coldbacon.com, which appears to have been made in 2005 by an American guy, uh, I forget his name, who had been left by his wife and made this like really strange kind of web 1.0, just hobbyist website, which happens for whatever reason to have a really good uh, Lu Xun resources. There's quite a lot of Lu Xun's writings and thoughts on his writings on here from both the maker of the website and quotations he's lifted from other people. 
So anyway, that's a good place to get this story online. Of course, it's it's out of copyright, so it's perfectly legal that it's up on here. Um, a couple of years back, I bought my dad uh, a bilingual version of this uh, story, a printed a printed version. He's he only speaks English. Um, I certainly couldn't read a book in Chinese, and if I can't. Neither can my dad. But anyway, he owns uh, quite a snappy looking bilingual version of this book, which is available as an ebook or a paperback or a hardback too? No, just a paperback um, on Amazon. And I can see that it was translated by. Huh, I had the names. Can't see them just now. But anyway, it was um, it's a self-published thing. It was made on CreateSpace. If you haven't heard of CreateSpace, and this is not an advertisement, it's a self-publishing to print rather than just ebook um, business that Amazon created, which basically lets you um, it, if it lets you put your book on Amazon, and then people can, whenever they buy it, a digital I believe it's a digitally printed copy will be sent to the buyer on demand. So. If you know about publishing, you'll know Amazon are a bit evil. You'll also know they're geniuses, and yeah, um, probably the way this version of uh, Madman's Diary was put out through CreateSpace would be an example of the genius. It's it's pretty cool. Anyway, I'm not reading that version. I'm reading the older, uh, communist-friendly version. Let's say it's it's not especially communist, but produced by people working for the Chinese government. Um, we'll, we'll later in the podcast we'll get in more to Lu Xun, the writer's relationship um, with the party. Um, it's an interesting one. To introduce you to Lu Xun, I'd like to read you this little excerpt from his preface to a collection of his writings called A Call to Arms. So here he is. Picture the scene. He's leaning against a tree just outside his cheap uh, hostel. In Japan where he was studying and his Chinese pal has come to try and rouse him to action to uh, politics and Lu Xun argues back. He says this, imagine an iron house without windows, absolutely indestructible, with many people fast asleep who will soon die of suffocation. But you know since they will die in their sleep they will not feel the pain of death. Now if you cry aloud to wake a few of the lighter sleepers, making those few unfortunate few suffer the agony of irrevocable death, do you think you're doing them a good turn? And then his friend says back, But if a few awake, you can't say there's no hope of destroying the iron house. So, what's this iron house metaphor? Well, basically, it's China in its present state, or the situation it's found itself in. A bad one, and... um Lushun's friend is trying to get him to return to political writing because he'd been demoralized. So who, what, where, what's new youth? What were these guys trying to fight for? Well, let me give you some historical context. Uh, you may wish to skip ahead if you already know this stuff. So we're somewhere near the end of China's so-called 100 years of humiliation. The last imperial dynasty, the Qing, has basically become corrupt. It ceased to advance the country. Meanwhile, the Western world and Japan has colonized a lot of China. China's far behind. And even with the 
revolution that eventually comes to China, the and the establishment of the Republic of China, the country is still um, quite backward. Confucianism is still the governing social and cultural ideology. But what's Confucianism? Well, for our purposes here, it's a uh, it's not a religious system. It's not. It's quite material. But it's um it's it's very social and the way Confucianism says society should be is effectively very conservative, very top down, patriarchal. Um it's centered around probably the bureaucracy and the gentleman and the scholar. In Confucianism, peasants are there to do the peasant work, women are there to do whatever they do. I've read the Analects by Confucius, it never mentions women, which I think is the most, one of the most telling things about it. So Confucianism still reigns. But then comes the May 4th movement. What's the May 4th movement? Well, at the end of World War One, um, the there was a thing drawn up called the Treaty of Versailles that you may have heard of. Uh, it treated Germany quite unfairly, I think that's the general agreement. But it it had an effect in the East too. It um, So there had been a German colony in China called Qingdao and the Japanese in World War One's rather minimal Eastern theater seized it from the Germans. And the Treaty of Versailles did not hand Qingdao back to the Chinese. It kept it in the hands of Japan, which went against the kind of spirit of the times of national self-determination. And it upset a lot of young Chinese people. And they protested the, I think, I forget if it was the Qing or the Republic of China government, but they protested them outside the gates of Tiananmen. And along with the May 4th movement came the New Culture Movement, which was, it was the young artists and literati who wanted to kind of rejuvenate the nation and get rid of these old traditions and corrupt leaderships that were kind of holding them back. So I have some of the New Culture Movement's um, guiding principles here. Um, I'll just go through them. Vernacular literature. Now this is important because um, Chinese literature up until this point had mostly been written in a classical style. A little, it's maybe not a great example, but imagine if we were still writing English in a Shakespearean style, or basically a style hundreds of years out of date. So they wanted something that was closer to the spoken language of the people in the literature, let's say. Um, or just something less suffocatingly formal. Uh, they wanted an end to the patriarchal family, I'm reading off Wikipedia by the way, in favour of individual freedom and women's liberation. Um, you'll see that quite a few of these things match up with the Communist Party's uh, guiding ideas. Uh, the next one, the view that China is a nation among nations, not as a uniquely Confucian culture. This one's really interesting in today's context because uh, the current president, Xi Jinping, is basically trying to bring Confucianism back. Um, probably that will prop up in future episodes, I won't get bogged down in that. Uh, the re-examination of Confucian texts and ancient classics using modern textual and critical methods, known as the Doubting Antiquity School. So... Criticism, basically, a critical approach to literature, life, the world, um, perhaps in line with uh, Western literary criticism, perhaps not, I don't want to put my foot in it there and say something wrong, uh, democratic and egalitarian values, this was definitely an, an attempt to 
modernize as the West had. Um, an orientation to the future rather than the past. Yeah, so a, a big focus on science, progress, reason, and less of a focus on traditions, repeating the past, the empire. So there's the new culture movement, and this is the thing that Lucian initially involved himself in, became demoralized, and then was spurred back into action. So if you go looking online or reading about Lucian, uh, there's a couple inciting incidents uh, from his childhood that kind of point to what drove him to progressive literature, let's say, and politics. Um, so I'll just quickly tell you one of them. So he was from a family that had previously kind of been in the scholarly, bureaucratic, middle class, let's say, world, but the family was on the decline and his father in, in his later years became ill and the medicine that Lucian's family sought for his father was traditional Chinese medicine and some of it so remember Lucian was watching all this some of it was definitely superstition medicine let's say rather than effective medicine so one of the things I remember when I was doing my research is that twin crickets were prescribed to his dad to deal with his um, tuber tuberculosis and guess what? None of this medicine worked and Lushun had to watch his father in decline. And after his father died and it was time for Lushun to get out there in the world, he went off to Japan to study medicine. And the reason he picked Japan was it was a nearby center of scientific Western, let's say, learning and uh, modernization. So that's what took him to Japan. And whilst he was there, he was prompted to turn away from medicine to writing and rather than tell you that myself how that happened I'll read you a couple of passages from Call to Arms the collection of his writing so Call to Arms by the way its Chinese name is Na Han um, which can be translated a few ways it can mean shout uh, outcry or rallying cry and I, I saw some people online saying that uh, the English name Call to, uh, Call to Arms is not a good translation. I, 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 that seems unlikely to me, but I don't have a dog in the race. I just think it's interesting seeing these um, questions and debates. Okay, so here's the first passage from Call to Arms. This is about uh, Lucian's decision to go study medicine. I've swapped out um, a couple of the place names are blanked out in the way that old writing in English sometimes would do with names and places. I've swapped that for the names of the places uh, spelled out as they should be in pinyin, but just be aware, uh, they probably wouldn't have been spelled out in pinyin at the time, they would have been Wade Giles, um, would have been Kiangsu and Nanking, I've rendered them Jiangsu and Nanjing, because that's what Mandarin actually sounds like, Wade Giles is awful. Anyway, here we go. I believe that those who sink from prosperity to poverty will probably come in the process to understand what the world is really like. I wanted to go to the Jiangsu school in Nanjing, perhaps because I was in search of a change of scene and faces. There was nothing for my mother to do but raise eight dollars for my travelling expenses and say I might do as I pleased. That she cried was only natural, for at that time the proper thing was to study the classics and take the official examinations. Anyone who studied foreign subjects was looked down upon as a fellow good-for-nothing who, out of out of desperation, was forced to sell his soul to foreign devils. So, Jiangsu and Nanjing—that's not Japan. So I suppose this, I suppose this is um, prior to 
heading off to Japan for medical study, but definitely on the run up to that. Here's the second passage. It's two paragraphs. Um, about half of it is what you will always find if you go reading or watching videos about the early years of Lushun. So I'm going to give you that plus a little bit extra on the end that usually gets chopped out. Here we go. I do not know what advanced methods are now used to reach microbiology, but at that time, lantern slides were used to show the microbes, and if the lecture ended early, the instructor might show slides of natural scenery or news to fill up the time. This was during the Russo-Japanese War, so there were many war films, and I had to join in the clapping and cheering in the lecture hall along with, all the, other along with the other students. It was a long time since I had seen any compatriots, but one day I saw a film showing some, showing some Chinese, one of whom was bound while many others stood around him. They were all strong fellows, but appeared completely apathetic. According to the commentary, the one with his hands bound was a spy working for the Russians, who was to have his head cut off by the Japanese military as a warning to others, while the Chinese beside him had come to enjoy the spectacle. Before the term was over, I had left for Tokyo, because after this film I felt that medical science was not so important after all. The people of a weak and backward country, however strong and healthy they may be, can only serve to be made examples of, or to witness such futile spectacles, and it doesn't really matter how many of them die of illness. The most important thing, therefore, was to change their spirit. And since at that time I felt that literature was the best means to this end, I determined to promote a literary movement. There were many Chinese students in Tokyo studying law, political science, physics and chemistry, even police work and engineering, but not one studying literature or art. However, even in this uncongenial atmosphere, I was fortunate enough to find some kindred spirits. We gathered the few others we needed, and after discussion, our first step, of course, was to publish a magazine, the title of which denoted that this was a new birth. As we were then rather classically inclined, we called it Xincheng, New Life. Right, so we had New Life, and Lu Xun wrote in that for a while, but eventually he felt it was going nowhere, he got demoral demoralized, and then his friend finally approached him, and they had that chat about the Iron House, and that's what spur spurred Lu Xun back into action. So when he returned to China, he was a literati, and he wrote stories with success. People, people read him. So, one of those really famous stories is the one we're talking about, or I'm talking about, let's be honest, in this episode, Diary of a Madman. So, to give you a, a brief plot summary, um, it's about a man in a village who has a rather swift decline into madness, his kind of what gets described as a persecution, persecution complex. Uh, it gets turned into a belief that the entire village is cannibalistic, they're all feeding upon each other, eating each other. Uh, the doctor is in on it, his brother is in on it, and even the village mutt is in on it. Um, characters give justifications from history uh, with precedents of cannibalism. Uh, the madman finally reaches the discovery or the conclusion, whatever you want to call it, that his own family and even himself ate his younger sister piece by piece when she was five years old. And a lot of the eating of people has medical and traditional connotations. Um, so there's a prescript at the start of this um, story, which is 
from a literary perspective, very interesting. Uh, first of all, it's written in classical Chinese, whereas what follows after is vernacular. And basically the prescript is kind of a, it's a different narrator saying, oh, I met my old friend. My old friend gave me this diary that his brother had written. His brother temporarily went mad, um, but then went off to take a government post. So that's quite, uh, it's been, a, taken as very significant by literary cr critics that this madman goes off to take a government post. I'll, um, I'll explain why now. So if you're not of the time, or if you're not Chinese, um, or if you've not heard much about Lu Xun, you kind of need secondary material to get the metaphor here. Certainly when I read the story for the first time, I had an idea about what the metaphor was about, but I didn't quite get its full richness. So the cannibalism, it's the key metaphor here, along with the madness. Um, cannibalism here in the story is just rendered as churen, churen, eat people. And it's kind of a metaphor for the anti-human crushing and frightening aspects of Confucianism and its attendant traditions. And the madness that the guy is experiencing appears to be something that's giving him a clearer picture. He's kind of seeing through to the real reality. He's seeing through these traditions for what they really are, which is murder, murderous, you might say. Um, so yeah, I'm going to read some excerpts from the story now, and I'll kind of tease out this madness reality and cannibalism equals Confucianism, Confucianism uh, metaphor. So here we go. The here's the very first entry from the diary. It's quite short. Tonight, the moon is very bright. I've not seen it for over 30 years. So today, when I saw it, I felt in unusually high spirits. I begin to realize that during the past 30 odd years, I have been in the dark, but now I must be extremely careful. Otherwise, why should that dog at the chow house have looked at me twice? I have reason for my fear. So, I think it's just a very an example of very good writing. It's quite foreboding. It's quite atmospheric. So it's a good translation, I suppose, as well as good writing. And interestingly, the moon could be interpreted as kind of the trigger for this guy's lunacy. He says that for 30 years, he's been in the dark and this moon prompts something that um, makes him believe see the reality but of course in western culture the moon is a trigger for madness in chinese culture it's it's i think it's considered a a good a good thing so it possibly is some evidence of western influences in lucian's writing if you choose to read it that way anyway here's an excerpt from the third entry in the diary the first sentence is a line that gets repeated uh, multiple times within the story Everything requires careful consideration if one is to understand it. In ancient times, as I recollect, people often ate human beings, but I'm rather hazy about it. I tried to look this up, but my history has no chronology, and scrawled over each page are the words, virtue and morality. Since I could not sleep anyway, I read intently half the night, until I began to see words between the lines, the whole book being filled with the two words, eat people. All these words written in the book, all the words spoken by our tenant, gaze at me strangely with an enigmatic smile. So, I, I just love this. This is great. Um, so it's also considered uh, 
significant part of the metaphor here um, because this is an old an old text almost certainly a Confucian text the words virtue and morality tied all all up with Confucianism it's all it's what it's all about the gentleman should do this the gentleman should do that and yet between the lines eat people so it's what the madman seems to see is really going on in these texts and I love the idea that the words are giving weird looks at the narrator the same way all the people in the village are. It's very, very into this part of the story. Okay, the ninth, an excerpt rather from the ninth diary entry. It's not the entire entry. Wanting to eat men, at the same time afraid of being eaten themselves, they all look at each other with the deepest suspicion. How comfortable life would be for them if they could rid themselves of such, such obsessions and go to work walk, eat and sleep at ease. They only have to they only have this one step to take. Yet fathers and sons, husbands and wives, brothers, friends, teachers and students, sworn enemies and even strangers have all joined in this conspiracy, discouraging and preventing each other from taking this step. So there you go. I mean it's almost as if Lucian is talking to us directly saying all these people need to do is cast off their traditions and you know, everybody wins. I feel that the metaphor here is maybe a bit thinner than it is at other points, but not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, from the 10th entry, the madman cries out to the villagers, and we're getting near the end of the short story here. You should change, change from the bottom of your hearts, I said. You must know that in future there will be no place for man-eaters in the world. If you don't change, you may be eaten by you may all be eaten by each other although so many are born they'll be wiped out by the real men just like wolves killed by hunters just like the reptiles so this i think is interesting because it matches up with some of lucian's other thoughts and writings about especially the chinese peasantry and the chinese nation he certainly wasn't very he didn't think there was anything very awesome about the traditions he was fighting against. He could see that the modern China of the time was not a powerful country. It was the the Qing and the Republic Republican government that overthrew it um, were constantly giving in to the demands of Western powers and they were failing to stop the Japanese from chipping away at their territory and also the yeah, the, the European countries were also chipping away at their territory, but yeah. So so the idea that he's telling these villagers, if you don't change, you know, you're, you're going to get eaten yourselves, it matches up quite nicely with the reality that this metaphor is trying to describe. So the here's excerpts from the 12th, oh no, these are the entire 12th and 13th entries of the diary, the very last two. They're both nice and short and sweet. I can't bear to think of it. I've only just realized that I've been living all these years in a place where for 4,000 years they have been eating human flesh. My brother had just taken over the charge of the house when our sister died, and he may well have used her flesh in our rice and dishes, making us eat it unwittingly. Is it possible that I ate several pieces of my sister's flesh unwittingly, and now it's my turn? How can a man like myself, after 4,000 years of man-caring history, I wonder if that's a mis misuse of the word, caring, anyway. 4,000 years of man-caring history, even though I knew nothing about it at first, ever hoped to face real men. 
entry 13. It's very short. People there, oh, sorry. Perhaps there are still children who have not eaten men. Save the children. There you go. Last three words. Save the children. I should mention here something I forgot to mention. That um, some of the inspiration for this story seems to have come from Nikolai Gogol's story, which is also called Diary of a Madman. It's a similar tale, but not the same. It's aiming to highlight um, kind of the the absurdities, absurdities, absurd, absurdities, the absurdities of the Russian feudal system. Um, but I think it goes for more of a comic effect, and I believe it comes down much less on the side of the madman. But um, a reason we know this is almost certainly influenced Lushun, and it's not just a coincidence, is that he was a translator of. Um, Gogol stories from Russian into Chinese. So plot summary over. Um, I'm going to rate this story. How would I rate it? Um, on my first reading, which perhaps was not, uh, maybe I was a bit distracted. I wasn't thrilled. Um, I also maybe didn't have a, as much of a sense of the feeling at the times. Um, I didn't have much of a sense of what Lu Xun kind of stood for in the China of the time and also modern China. Uh, upon the second reading that I've done for the show, yeah, I thought this, this story and this translation were really nice. Um, it's pretty lovely prose. Well, lovely. There are moments that are quite quite lovely prose, but I should, I should point out that because Lu Xun was going for this vernacular style um, and the, the translators emulated that, it's not flowery or descriptive English. It's mostly to the point, but, you know, efficient prose can have its beauties too, I would say. And yeah, nice little, nice piece of writing. Quite eerie at points. Um, gothic, not really gothic, but certainly there's, I feel there's a little bit of horror creeping into this story. I'd rate it four out of five shifty village mutts, or four out of five sister-eating brothers. Four out of five useless doctors. There you go. Pick one. Pick the one you like. Okay, so let's go into the relationship of Lushun with the Communist Party. This is a fun one. So, um, initially, um, Lushun's sympathies were with the first Chinese revolution and the, the Republic of China it created, but as we've already said, he he perceived its shortcomings pretty quickly, and he gradually became more pessimistic and fell out of love with the um, the Republic of China and the change it had promised and failed to deliver on. And towards the end of his life, the civil war was beginning between the, the nationalists who ran the Republic of China and the communists who were trying to overthrow it, basically. And he... He never joined the Communist Party in his life, but towards the end, I think he did write a letter congratulating the Communist Party on its long march, which, um, long story short, was an evasive maneuver they took to avoid being destroyed by the Nationalist Army and eventually ensured their final victory and the Chinese Revolution. Uh, but Lucian never lived to see that, and after his death, he was made an honorary member of the Communist Party. That seems a bit dodgy, <laughs> if you ask me. But um, yeah, he was uh, he was enshrined by Mao. Mao thought Lu Xun was pretty ace, which is 
It's a bit ironic because Lucian was a rebel, he spoke freely, and uh, of course that wouldn't have really worked for him very well in revolutionary China. Um, certainly not later into the 50s and then the Cultural Revolution that followed. Mao even admitted himself that by the 50s, if Lu Xun were still alive, he would have been put in jail or gone silent. Ominous, uh, ominous phrasing there. Yeah. So I'll tell you a wee story about Lu Xun um, from when I was teaching in a training school called Web English, teaching adults. And I learned a little bit about the impression this guy has in modern Chinese people because he's a part of the education system. He's the equivalent in Scotland would be Robert Burns. It's someone everybody learns about if you go to a state school. Um, I don't know if uh, England has an equivalent, someone everyone learns about. Shakespeare, I suppose. Although Shakespeare is from far older times. Anyway, uh, so I. I had a, an English corner where I was basically free to teach whatever I liked. And one day I thought I would just present some different English language authors and we would talk, you would use vocabulary to describe their differences. And one of the guys I popped up was Dickens. And, you know, Dickens was also a guy somewhat perturbed by the society he lived in and chose to write about it. And some of my more advanced English speaking Students, remember they're all adults, and um, were like, yeah, this is Lu Xun, he must have been fighting against the society. And I was like, fighting? Maybe not the right word for Dickens, but probably the right word for Lu Xun. So yeah, that, that's, that's that tale. Um, I have some other Lu Xun anecdotes. I've been to quite a few sites um, devoted to him. There's quite a lot of Lu Xun places you can visit if you are visiting China or if you live there. Um, so here's some of them. Um, if you're in Shanghai or if you're visiting Shanghai, you can go up to Hongko District where they have a specially preserved writer's street where a lot of, um, the intelligence or the, yeah, Chinese literati and intelligentsia, they chose to live in Hongko, which was ironically the district that was controlled by Japan. But anyway, there's a street that has, um, kind of stone what would you call them? Carvings or inscriptions that kind of have little pictures of all these various writers. Lu Xun is among them. Not so far away from this street, there's a former residence of his you can visit. It was actually the house that he spent his final years in. I think maybe that's where he died. So if you're, <laughs> if you don't like stuff like that, uh, maybe stay away. But you can you can check out the house. It's a cheap entry fee. Just not so far off from that, there's a really nice, quite large park, the Lu Xun Park. Uh, which inside it has a museum devoted to him. I've not checked out the museum, but I do recommend the park. There's nothing very Lu Xun-ish about the park. It's just a very nice park full of, um, you know, Chinese old people playing instruments, playing uh, games, smoking, all that, all that fun stuff. Um, he has a former residence in Shaoxing, his hometown. I've been there. I recall it had a bit of a museum as well as the residence itself. So it's not just a generic, one of these generic former residences that you can find all over China. And there's also a Lucian former residence and I think museum in Beijing. I've not been to that, but it exists. He did live there. And I I believe there's quite a lot of Lucian parks in other Chinese cities. I know there's one in Qingdao. Um, I don't think I've been inside that one. There, There's probably others, but yeah. Um, those are the, your places to go make a pilgrimage if you wish. Um, I think it's 
a little strange that we don't know Lucian so well in the West. But then, how many classic or even modern Chinese writers do we know in the West? Not an awful lot, I feel. So that's why I'm one reason I've I've made this podcast. Um, something later shows are going to look at is what Western tastes are for Chinese writing. Um, I know, or I I certainly believe we like rebels, but I wonder if Lucian is the right kind of rebel that would scratch the itches of the Western market because. You know he's he's quite orthodox. He's um, adopted. He's been adopted by the Communist Party in their education system. Now I'm not saying that's any reason to disregard him or not try to understand him better in the West. In fact, exactly the opposite. Um, I think that's exactly the kind. Of, if if he's known all across China and admired by the Chinese people, and he's part of the education system, if you want to understand the country. And it's history. This is exactly the kind of guy that people ought to know about. So yeah, um, I've got other things about his legacy that I found after a little bit of googling online. So, interesting fact: Lu Xun's writings were banned in Taiwan until the early, and sorry, until the late eighties. Um, I think something I certainly didn't realize about Taiwan was that a little bit like Korea, South Korea, that is, although it was a Western ally. During the Cold War, it, it was a dictatorship for, you know, until not very long ago, and Lushun was considered a leftist. It was, I suppose, a right-wing dictatorship, so he was banned. There you go. Next interesting fact: um, the Japanese Nobel laureate, sorry if I slaughter this pronunciation, uh, Kenzaburo Ore, might have said that wrong. He called Lushun the greatest writer Asia produced in the 20th century. So there you go. Um, the country that gave Lushun <laughs> the medical education he never used, um, showing some appreciation back. And last of all, um, Wikipedia told me that Frederick Jameson, the postmodern uh, literary critic wrote an essay where he describes uh, Diary of a Madman and other stories by Lucian as an excellent example of third world writing and I went and looked online read the PDF, really wasn't thrilled uh, so if you're looking for some generic postmodern western babble, you know, lots of mentions of the oral stage, Freud some I don't know, I didn't read it that closely um, didn't look great, anyway if that's the kind of thing you like, go look up Fred Frederick Jameson Lushun PDFs out there for free. Also, YouTube has quite a lot of lectures on Lushun. Um, didn't watch any of them, but looks like there's resources out there if you want to study this guy. So that's the full extent of everything I have to say about the Diary of a Madman and Lushun. If I have messed anything up, if I've misrepresented the facts, mispronounced a word, then just sling me a message on the links provided in the show notes. I'll also slap in a link to that Frederick Jameson essay if you really must do that to yourself. But yeah, anything at all you'd like to say, just reach out. If, if you'd like to contribute and talk about something uh, written in translated Chinese you've read, if you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, if you've got a question, just sling it my way. I'd love to hear from you, and I'd also love for you to tune in to the next episode. It's going to be about Wang Shuo's Please Don't Call Me Human. So fast forwarding to the 90s and keeping up the 
critical angle on society. Although, we're not going to be keeping that up every episode, don't worry. Don't worry about it. Anyway, until next time, toodaloo and zai jian. <laughs> <laughs>